Section 47 of Hinduism and Buddhism in Historical Sketch, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Hinduism and Buddhism in Historical Sketch, Volume 1 by Charles Eliot. Chapter 15 Mythology in Hinduism and Buddhism. 1. The later phases of Buddhism, described as Mahayana, show this feature among many others, that the supernatural and mythological side of religion becomes prominent. Gods or angels play an increasingly important part. The Buddha himself becomes a being superior to all gods, and Buddhas. Gods and saints perform at every turn feats for which miracles seem too modest a name. The object of the present chapter is to trace the early stages of these beliefs, for they are found in the Pali Canon, although it is not until later that they overgrow and hide the temple in whose walls they are rooted. It may be fairly said that Buddhism is not a miraculous religion, in the sense that none of its essential doctrines depend on miracles. It would seem that such a religion as Mormonism must collapse if it were admitted that the Book of Mormon is not a revelation delivered to Joseph Smith. But the content of the Buddha's teaching is not miraculous, and though he is alleged to have possessed insight exceeding ordinary human knowledge, yet this is not exactly a miracle, and it is a question whether an unusual intelligence disciplined by meditation might not attain to such knowledge. Still, though, the essence of the doctrine may be detachable from miracles and even be scientific. One cannot read very far in the Vinaya or the Sutta Patika without coming upon unearthly beings or supernatural occurrences. The credibility of miracles is, to my mind, simply a question of evidence. Any extraordinary event, such as a person doing a thing totally foreign to his character, is improbable a priori. But the law does not allow that the best of men is incapable of committing the worst of crimes, if the evidence proves he did. Nor can the most extraordinary violation of nature's laws be pronounced impossible if supported by sufficient evidence. Only the evidence must be strong in proportion to the strangeness of the circumstances. But I cannot see that the uniformity of nature is any objection to the occurrence of miracles, for as a rule a miracle is regarded not as an event without a cause, but as due to a new cause, namely the intervention of a superhuman person. Many of the best-known miracles are such that one may imagine this person to effect them by understanding and controlling some unknown natural force, just as we control electricity. Only evidence is required to show that he can do so. But on the other hand, the weakness of every religion which depends on miracles is that their truth is contested and not unreasonably. If they are true, why are they not certain? Of all the phenomena described as miracles, ghosts, fortune-telling, magic, clairvoyance, prophesying, and so on, none command unchallenged acceptance. In every age, miracles, portents, and apparitions have been recorded, 
yet none of them with a certainty that carries universal conviction. And in many ages, contemporary skepticism was possible. Even in Vedic times, there were people who did not believe in the existence of Indra. It is clear that some miracles require more evidence than others, and many old stories are so fantastic that they may justly be put aside, because those who reported them did not see, as we can, what difficulties they involve, and hence felt no need for caution in belief. Among ancient Indians or Hebrews, tales of seven-headed snakes or of stopping the sun did not arouse the critical spirit, for the phenomena did not seem much more extraordinary than centipedes or eclipses. Only those who understand that such stories upset all we know of anatomy and astronomy can realize their improbability and the weight of evidence necessary to make them credible. The most important distinction in miracles, I use the word as a popular description of extraordinary events which is readily understood, though hard to define, is whether they are in any way subjective, that is to say that they depend in the last resort on an impression produced in certain but not all human minds, or whether they are objective, that is to say that all witnesses would have seen them like any other event. A man rising into the air would be an objective miracle if it were admitted that this levitation was as real as the flight of a bird, and very strong evidence would be necessary to make us believe that such a movement had really been executed. But the case is different if we are dealing with the conviction of an enthusiast, that he rose aloft, or even with the conviction of his disciples, that they, being in ecstasy, saw him do so. There is no reason to doubt the subjective reality of well-authenticated visions, and as motives and stimuli to action that may have real objective importance. Miracles of healing are not dissimilar. A man's mind can affect his body, either directly through his conviction that certain physical changes are about to take place, or indirectly as conveying the influence of some powerful external mind which may be either calming or stimulating. That some persons have a special power of healing nervous or mental diseases can hardly be doubted, and I am not disposed to reject any well-authenticated miraculous cure, believing that sudden mental relief or acute joy can so affect the whole frame that in the improved physical conditions thus caused, even diseases not usually considered as nervous may pass away. But though there is reason to discredit miracles of healing, it is clear that they are not only exaggerated, but also distorted by reporters who do not understand their nature. Those who chronicle the cures, supposed to be effected at Lourdes at the present day, keep within the bounds of what is explicable. But a Hindu, who had seen a cripple recover some power of movement might be equally ready to believe that when a man's leg had been cut off the stump could grow into a complete limb. The miraculous events recorded in the Pitakas differ from those of later works, whether Mahayanist literature or the Hindu Puranas and epics, chiefly in their moderation. They may be classified under several heads. Many of them are mere embroidery or embellishment due to poetical exuberance, esteemed appropriate in those generous climates, though repugnant to our chilly tastes. In every country, poetry is allowed to overstep the prosaic borders of fact 
without criticism. When an English poet says, The red rose cries, she is near, she is near, and the white rose weeps, she is late, the larkspur listens, I hear, I hear, and the lily whispers, I wait. No one thinks of criticizing the lines as absurd because flowers cannot talk or of trying to prove that they can. Poetry can take liberties with facts, provided it follows the lines of metaphors which the reader finds natural. The same latitude cannot be allowed in unfamiliar directions. Thus, though a shower of flowers from heaven is not more extraordinary than talking flowers, it is quite natural in Indian poetry. It would probably disconcert the English reader. An Indian poet would not represent flowers as talking, but he would give the same idea by saying that the spirits inhabiting trees and plants recited stanzas. Similarly, when a painter draws a picture of an angel with wings rising from the shoulder blades, even the very scientific do not think it needful to point out that no such anatomical arrangement is known or probable, nor do the very pious maintain that such creatures exist. The whole question is allowed to rest happily in some realm of acquiescence, untroubled by discussions. And it is in this spirit that Indian books relate how when the Buddha went abroad, showers of flowers fell from the sky, and the air resounded with heavenly music, or diversify their theological discussions with interludes of demons, nymphs, and magic serpents. And although this riot of the imagination offends our ideas of good sense and proportion, the Buddhists do not often lose the distinction between what Matthew Arnold called literature and dogma. The Buddha's visits to various heavens are not presented as articles of faith. They are simply a pleasant setting for his discourses. Some miracles, of course, have a more serious character and can be less easily separated from the essentials of the faith. Thus the Patakas represent the Buddha as able to see all that happens in the world, and to transport himself anywhere at will. But even in such cases we may remember that when we say of a well-informed and active person that he is omniscient and ubiquitous, we are not misunderstood. The hyperbole of Indian legends finds its compensation in the small importance attached to them. No miraculous circumstance recorded of the Buddha has anything like the significance attributed by Christians to the virgin birth or the resurrection of Christ. His superhuman powers are in keeping with the picture drawn of his character. They are mostly the result of an attempt to describe a mind and will of more than human strength but the superhuman thus idealized rarely works miracles of healing. He saves mankind by teaching the way of salvation, not by alleviating a few chance cases of physical distress. In later works, he is represented as performing plentiful and extraordinary miracles, but these are just the instances in which we can most clearly trace the addition of embellishments. The elaboration of marvelous episodes is regarded in India as a legitimate form of literary art, no more blamable than dramatization, and in sacred writings it flourishes unchecked. In Hinduism, as in Buddhism, 
there is not wanting a feeling that the soul is weary of the crowd of deities who demand sacrifices and promise happiness and on the serener heights of philosophy gods have little place still most forms of hinduism cannot like buddhism be detached from the gods and no extravagance is too improbable to be included in the legends about them the extravagance is the more startling because their exploits form part of a quasi-historical narrative rama and krishna seem to be idealized and deify portraits of ancient heroes who came to be regarded as incarnations of the almighty this is understood by indians to mean not that the almighty submitted consistently to human limitations but that he though incarnate exercised whenever it pleased him and often most capriciously his full divine force with this idea before them and no historical scruples to restrain them indian writers tell how krishna held up a mountain on his finger indian readers accept the statement and crowds of pilgrims visit the scene of the exploit the later buddhist writings are perhaps not less extravagant than the puranas but the patakas are relatively sober though not quite consistent in their account of the buddha's attitude to the miraculous thus he encourages sagata to give a display of miracles such as walking in the air in order to prepare the mind of a congregation to whom he is going to preach but in other narratives which seem ancient and authentic he expresses his disapproval of such performances just as christ refused to give signs and says that they do not conduce to the conversion of the unconverted or to the increase of the converted those who know india will easily call up a picture of how the bhikkhus strove to impress the crowd by exhibitions not unlike a modern juggler's tricks and how the master stopped them his motives are clear these performances had nothing to do with the essence of his teaching if it be true that he ever countenanced them he soon saw his error he did not want people to say that he was a conjurer who knew the gandhara charm or any other trick and though we have no warrant for doubting that he believed in the reality of the powers known as idhi it is equally certain that he did not consider them essential or even important for religion somewhat similar is the attitude of early buddhism to the spirit world the hosts of deities and demons who people this and other spheres their existence is assumed but the truths of religion are not dependent on them and attempts to use their influence by sacrifices and oracles are deprecated as vulgar practices similar to juggling later buddhism became infected with mythology and the critical change occurs when deities instead of being merely protectors of the church take an active part in the work of salvation when the hindu gods developed into personalities who could appeal to religions and philosophic minds as cosmic forces as revealers of the truth and guides to bliss the example was too attractive to be neglected and a pantheon of bodhisattvas arose but it is clear that when the buddha preached in kosala and magadha the local deities had not attained any such position the systems of philosophy then in vogue were mostly not theistic and strange as the words may sound religion had little to do with the gods 
if this be thought to rest on a mistranslation it is certainly true that the dhamma had very little to do with the devas the example of rome under the empire or of modern china makes the position clearer in neither would a serious inquirer turn to the ancient national gods for spiritual help often as the devas figure in early buddhist stories the significance of their appearance nearly always lies in their relations with the buddha or his disciples of mere mythology such as the dealings of brahma and indra with other gods there is little in fact the gods though freely invoked as accessories are not taken seriously and there are some extremely curious passages in which gotama seems to laugh at them much as the skeptics of the eighteenth century laughed at jehovah thus in the kavada sutta he relates how a monk who was puzzled by a metaphysical problem applied to various gods and finally accosted brahma himself in the presence of all his retinue after hearing the question which was where do the elements cease and leave no trace behind brahma replies i am the great brahma the supreme the mighty the all-seeing the ruler the lord of all the controller the creator the chief of all appointing to each his place the ancient of days the father of all that are and are to be but said the monk i did not ask you friend whether you are indeed all you now say but i ask where the four elements cease and leave no trace then the great brahma took him by the arm and led him aside and said these gods think i know and understand everything therefore i gave no answer in their presence but i do not know the answer to your question and you had better go and ask the buddha even more curiously ironical is the account given of the origin of brahma there comes a time when this world system passes away and then certain beings are reborn in the world of radiance and remain there a long time sooner or later the world system begins to evolve again and the palace of brahma appears but it is empty then some being whose time is up falls from the world of radiance and comes to life in the palace and remains there alone at last he wishes for company and so it happens that other beings whose time is up fall from the world of radiance and join him and the first being thinks that he is great brahma the creator because when he felt lonely and wished for companions other beings appeared and the other beings accept this view and at last one of brahma's retinue falls from that state and is born in the human world and if he can remember his previous birth he reflects that he is transitory but that brahma still remains and from this he draws the erroneous conclusion that brahma is eternal he who dared to represent brahma for which name we might substitute allah or jehovah as a pompous deluded individual worried by the difficulty of keeping up his position had more than the usual share of skepticism and irony the compilers of such discourses regarded the gods as mere embellishments as gargoyles and quaint figures in the cathedral porch not as saints above the altar the mythology and cosmology associated with early buddhism are really extraneous the buddha's teachings is simply the four truths 
and some kindred ethical and psychological matter. It grew up in an atmosphere of animism, which peopled the trees and streams and mountains with spirits. It accepted and played with the idea, just as it might have accepted and played with the idea of radioactivity. But such notions do not affect the essence of the Dharma, and it might be preached in severe isolation. Yet in Asia it hardly ever has been so isolated. It is true that Indian mythology has not always accompanied the spread of Buddhism. There is much of it in Tibet and Mongolia, but less in China and Japan, and still less in Burma. But probably in every part of Asia, the Buddhist missionaries found existing a worship of nature's spirits and accepted it, sometimes even augmenting and modifying it. In every age, the elect may have risen superior to all ideas of gods and heavens and hells, but for any just historical perspective, for any sympathetic understanding of the faith, as it exists as a living force today, it is essential to remember this background and frame of fantastic but graceful mythology. Many later Mahayanist books are full of Dharanis or spells. Dharanis are not essentially different from mantras especially tantric mantras containing magical syllables. But whereas mantras are more or less connected with worship, dharanis are rather for personal use, spells to ward off evil and bring good luck. The Chinese pilgrim, Swan Shuang, states that the sect of the Mahasanghikas, which in his opinion arose in connection with the First Council, compiled a pitaka of dharanis, the tradition cannot be dismissed as incredible, for even the Nigad Nikaya relates how a host of spirits visited the Buddha in order to impart a formula which would keep his disciples safe from harm. Buddhist and Brahmanic mythology represented two methods of working up popular legends. The Mahabharata and Puranas introduce us to a moderately harmonious, if miscellaneous, society of supernatural personages decently affiliated to one another and to the Brahmanic teaching. The same personages reappear in Buddhism, but are analogous to Christian angels or to fairies, rather than to minor deities. They are not so much the heroes of legends as protectors. They are interesting not for their past exploits, but for their readiness to help believers or to testify to the true doctrine. Still, there was a great body of Buddhist and Jain legend in ancient India which handled the same stories as Brahmanic legend, that is, the tale of Krishna, but in a slightly different manner. The characteristic form of Buddhist legend is the Jataka, or birth story. Folklore and sagas, ancient jokes and tragedies, the whole stock in trade of rhapsodists and minstrels are made an edifying and interesting branch of scripture by simply identifying the principal characters with the Buddha, his friends, and his enemies, in their previous births. But in Hinayanist Buddhism, legend and mythology are ornamental and edifying, nothing more. Spirits may set a good example or send good luck. They have nothing to do with emancipation or nirvana. The same distinction of spheres is not wholly lost in Hinduism. For though the great philosophic works treat of God under various names, they mostly ignore minor deities. 
and though the language of the Bhagavad Gita is exuberant and mythological, yet only Krishna is God. All other spirits are part of him. The deities most frequently mentioned in Buddhist works are Indra, generally under the name of Saka, Sakra, and Brahma. The former is no longer the demon-slaying, soma-drinking deity of the Vedas, the heavenly counterpart of a pious Buddhist king. He frequently appears in the Jataka stories as the protector of true religion and virtue, and when a good man is in trouble, his throne grows hot and attracts his attention. His transformation is analogous to the process by which heathen deities, especially in the Eastern Church, have been accepted as Christian saints. Brahma rules in a much higher heaven than Saka. His appearances on the earth are rarer and more weighty, and sometimes he seems to be a personification of whatever intelligence and desire for good there is in the world. But in no case do the Patakas concede to him the position of supreme ruler of the universe. In one singular narrative, the Buddha tells his disciples how he once ascertained that Brahma Bhaka was under the delusion that his heaven was eternal and cured him of it. All Indian religions have a passion for describing in bold imaginative outline the history and geography of the universe. Their ideas are juster than those of Europeans and Semites, insofar as they imply a sense of the distribution of life throughout immensities of time and space. The Hindu perceived more clearly than the Jew and Greek that his own age and country were merely parts of a much longer series and of a far larger structure or growth. He wished to keep this whole continually before the mind, but in attempting to describe it he fell into that besetting intellectual sin of India, the systematizing of the imaginary. Ages, continents, and worlds are described in detailed statements which bear no relation to facts. Thus, Brahmanic cosmogony usually deals with a period of time called Kalpa. This is a day in the life of Brahma, who lives one hundred years of such days, and it marks the duration of a world which comes into being at its commencement and is annihilated at its end. It consists of 4,320 times a million years and is divided into 14 smaller periods, called Manvantaras, each presided over by a superhuman being called Manu. A Manvantara contains about 71 Mahayugas, and each Mahayuga is what men call the four ages of the world. Geography and astronomy show similar precision. The Earth is the lowest of seven spheres or worlds, and beneath it are a series of hells. The three upper spheres last for a hundred kalpas, but are still material, though less gross than those below. The whole system of worlds is encompassed above and below by the shell of the egg of Brahma. Round this again are envelopes of water, fire, ether, mind, and finally the infinite pradana, or cause of all existing things. The earth consists of seven land masses, divided and surrounded by seven seas. In the center of the central landmass rises Mount Meru, nearly a million miles high, and bearing on its peaks 
the cities of Brahma and other gods. The cosmography of the Buddhists is even more luxuriant, for it regards the universe as consisting of innumerable spheres, kakavalas, each of which might seem to a narrower imagination a universe in itself, since it has its own earth, heavenly bodies, paradises, and hells. A sphere is divided into three regions, the lowest of which is the region of desire. This consists of eleven divisions, which, beginning from the lowest, are the hells, and the worlds of animals, pretas, hungry ghosts, asuras, titans, and men. This last, which we inhabit, consists of a vast circular plain, largely covered with water. In the center of it is Mount Meru, and it is surrounded by a wall. Above it rise six devalokas, or heavens of the inferior gods. Above the realms of desire there follow sixteen worlds, in which there is form but no desire. All are states of bliss, one higher than the other, and are all attained by the exercise of meditation. Above these again come four formless worlds, in which there is neither desire nor form. They correspond to the four stages of Arupa trances, and in them the gross and evil elements of existence are reduced to a minimum, but still they are not permanent, and cannot be regarded as final salvation. We naturally think of this series of worlds as so many stories, rising one above the other, and they are so depicted. But it will be observed that the animal kingdom is placed between the hells and humanity, obviously not as having its local habitation there, but as better off than the one, though inferior to the other. And perhaps if we pointed this out to the Hindu artist, he would smile and say that his many-storied picture must not be taken so literally. All states of being are merely states of mind, hellish, brutish, human, and divine. Grotesque as Hindu notions of the world may seem, they include two great ideas of modern science. The universe is infinite, or at least immeasurable. The vision of the astronomer who sees a solar system in every star of the Milky Way is not wider than the thought that devised these kakavalas, or spheres, and each with a vista of heavens and a procession of Buddhas to look after its salvation yet compared with the sum of being a sphere in an atom. Space is filled by aggregates of them, considered by some as groups of three, by others as clusters of a thousand. And secondly, these world systems, with the living beings and plants in them, are regarded as growing and developing by natural processes, and equally in virtue of natural processes as decaying and disintegrating when the time comes. In the Agana Sutta, we have curious account of the evolution of man, which, though not the same as Darwin's, shows the same idea of development, or perhaps degeneration and differentiation. Human beings were originally immaterial, aerial, and self-luminous, but as the world gradually assumed its present form, they took to eating first of all a fragrant kind of earth, and then plants, with the result that their bodies became gross and differences of sex and color were produced. No sect of Hinduism personifies the power of evil in one figure corresponding to Satan, or the Araman of Persia. 
in proportion as a nation thinks pantheistically it is disinclined to regard the world as being mainly a contest between good and evil it is true that there are innumerable demons and innumerable good spirits who withstand them but just as there is no finality in the exploits of rama and krishna so ravana and other monsters do not attain to the dignity of the devil in a sense the destructive forces are evil but when they destroy the world at the end of a kalpa the result is not the triumph of evil it is simply winter after autumn leading to spring and another summer buddhism having a stronger ethical bias than hinduism was more conscious of the existence of a tempter or a power that makes men sin this power is personified but somewhat indistinctly as mara originally and etymologically a god of death he is commonly called mara the evil one which corresponds to the mrichya papma of the vedas but as a personality he seems to have developed entirely within the buddhist circle and to be unknown to general indian mythology in the thought of the patakas the connection between death and desire is clear the great evils and great characteristics of the world are that everything in it decays and dies and that existence depends on desire therefore the ruler of the world may be represented as the god of desire and death buddha and his saints struggle with evil and overcome it by overcoming desire and this triumphant struggle is regarded as a duel with mara who was driven off and defeated even in his most mythological aspects mara is not a deity of hell he presides over desire and temptation not over judgment and punishment this is the function of yama the god of the dead and one of the brahmanic deities who have migrated to the far east he has been adopted by buddhism though no explanation is given of his status but he is introduced as a vague but effective figure and yet hardly more than a metaphor whenever it is desired to personify the inflexible powers that summon the living to the other world and there make them undergo with awful accuracy the retribution due for their deeds in a remarkable passage called death's messengers it is related that when a sinner dies he is led before king yama who asks him if he never saw the three messengers of the gods sent as warnings to mortals namely an old man a sick man and a corpse the sinner under judgment admits that he saw but did not reflect and yama sentences him to punishment until suffering commensurate to his sins has been inflicted buddhism tells of many hells of which avitsi is the most terrible they are of course all temporary and therefore purgatories rather than places of eternal punishment and the beings who inhabit them have the power of struggling upwards and acquiring merit but the task is difficult and one may be born repeatedly in hell the phraseology of buddhism calls existences in heavens and hells new births to us it seems more natural to say that certain people are born again as men and that others go to heaven or hell but the three destinies are really parallel the desire to accommodate influential ideas though they may be incompatible with the strict teaching of the buddha is well seen in the position accorded to spirits of the dead the buddha was untiring 
in his denunciation of every idea which implied that some kind of soul or double escapes from the body at death and continues to exist but the belief in the existences of departed ancestors and the presentation of offerings to them have always formed a part of hindu domestic religion to gratify this persistent belief buddhism recognized the world of petas that is ghosts or spirits many varieties of these are described in later literature some are as thin and withered as leaves and suffer from continual hunger for their mouths are so small that they can take no solid food according to strict theology the petas are category of beings just above animals and certain forms of bad conduct entail birth among them but in popular estimation they are merely the spirits of the dead who can receive nourishment and other benefits from the living the veneration of the dead and the offering of sacrifices to or for them which form a conspicuous feature in far eastern buddhism are often regarded as a perversion of the older faith and so indeed they are yet in the kodaka pata which if not a very early work is still part of the sutta pataka we found some curious and pathetic verses describing how the spirits of the departed wait by walls and crossways and at the doors hoping to receive offerings of food when they receive it their hearts are gladdened and they wish their relatives prosperity as many streams fill the ocean so does what is given here help the dead above all gifts given to monks will redound to the good of the dead for a long time this last point is totally opposed to the spirit of gotama's doctrine but it contains the germ of the elaborate system of funeral masses which has assumed vast proportions in the far east four what then is the position of the buddha himself in this universe of many worlds and multitudinous deities european writers sometimes fail to understand how the popular thought of india combines the human and superhuman they divorce the two aspects and unduly emphasize one or the other if they are impressed by the historical character of gotama they conclude that all legends with a supernatural tinge must be late and adventitious if on the other hand they feel that the extent and importance of the legendary element entitles it to consideration they minimize the historical kernel but in india reality and fancy prosaic fact and extravagant imagination are found not as successive stages in the development of religious ideas but simultaneously and side by side kishub Sen was a babu of liberal views who probably looked as prosaic a product of the nineteenth century as any radical politician yet his followers were said to regard him as a god and whether this is a correct statement or not it is certain that he was credited with superhuman power and received a homage which seemed even to indians excessive it is in the light of such incidents and such temperaments that we should read the story of the buddha could we be transported to india in the days of his preaching we should probably see a figure very like the portrait given in the more sober parts of the patakas a teacher of great intelligence and personal charm yet distinctly human 
but had we talked about him in the villages which lay along his route, or even in the circle of his disciples? I think we should have heard tales of how Davis visited him, and how he was wont to vanish and betake himself to some heaven. The Hindu attributes such feats to a religious leader, as naturally as Europeans would ascribe to him a magnetic personality and a flashing eye. The Patakas emphasize the omniscience and sinlessness of the Buddha, but contain no trace of the idea that he is God in the Christian or Mohammedan sense. They are consistently non-theistic, and it is only later that Buddhas and Bodhisattvas become transformed into beings about whom theistic language can be used. But in those parts of the Pitakas which may be reasonably supposed to contain the ideas of the first century after the Buddha's death, he is constantly represented as instructing devas and receiving their homage. In the Kudakapata, the spirits are invited to come and do him reverence. He is described as the chief of the world with all its gods, and is made to deny that he is a man. If a Buddha cannot be called a diva, rather than a man, it is only because he is higher than both. It is this train of thought which leads later Buddhists to call him Devati Deva, or the Deva who is above all other Devas, and thus make him ultimately a being comparable with Siva or Vishnu. The idea that great teachers of mankind appear in regular series and at stated intervals is certainly older than Gotama but it is hard to say how far it was systematized before his time. The greatness of the position which he won and the importance of the institutions which he founded naturally caused his disciples to formulate the vague traditions about his predecessors. They were called indifferently Buddha, Jina, Arhat, etc. It was only after the constitution of the Buddhist church that these titles received fixed meanings. Closely connected with the idea of the Buddha, or Jina, is that of the Mahapurusha, or great man. It was supposed that there are born from time to time supermen distinguished by physical marks, who become either universal monarchs, Kakravartin, or teachers of the truth. Such a prediction is said to have been made respecting the infant Gotama and all previous Buddhas. The marks are duly catalogued as thirty-two greater and eighty smaller signs. Many of them are very curious. The hair is glossy black. The tongue is so long that it can lick the ears. The arms reach to the knees in an ordinary upright position. The skin has a golden tinge. There is a protuberance on the skull and a smaller one, like a ball, between the eyebrows. The long arms may be compared with the Persian title rendered in Latin by Longimanus and it is conceivable that the protuberances on the head may have been personal peculiarities of Gotama. For though the thirty-two marks are mentioned in the Patakas as well-known signs establishing his claims to eminence, no description of them has been found in any pre-Buddhist work, and they may have been modified to suit his personal appearance. At any rate, it is clear that the early generations of Buddhists considered that the master conformed to the type of the Mahapurusha, and attached importance to the fact. The Patakas repeatedly allude to the knowledge of these marks as forming a part of Brahmanic training, and in the account of the previous Buddha Vipassi they are duly enumerated. 
these ideas about a great man and his characteristics were probably current among the people at the time of buddha's birth they do not harmonize completely with later definitions of a buddha's nature but they show how gautama's contemporaries may have regarded his career in the older books of the patakas six buddhas are mentioned as preceding gautama namely vipassi siki visabhu kakusandha konagamana and kasapa the last three at least may have some historical character the chinese pilgrim fa xian who visited india from 405 to 411 a.d saw their reputed birthplaces and says that there still existed followers of devadatta apparently in kosala who recognized these three buddhas but not gotama asoka erected a monument in honor of konagamana in nepal with a dedicatory inscription which has been preserved in the majima nikaya we find a story about kakusanda and his disciples and gotama once gave an extended account of vipassi whose teaching and career are represented as almost identical with his own different explanations have been given of this common element there is clearly a wish to emphasize the continuity of the dhamma and the similarity of its exponents in all ages but are we to believe that the stories true or romantic originally told of gotama were transferred to his mythical forerunners or that before his birth there was a buddha legend to which the account of his career was accommodated probably both processes went on simultaneously the notices of the jain saints show that there must have been such legends and traditions independent of gotama to them we may refer things like the miracles attending birth but the general outline of the buddha's career the departure from home struggle for enlightenment and hesitation before preaching seem to be a reminiscence of gotama's actual life rather than an earlier legend there is an interesting discourse describing the wonders that attend the birth of a buddha such as that he passes from the tusita heaven to his mother's womb that she must die seven days after his birth that she stands when he is born and so on we may imagine that the death of the mother is due to the historical fact that gotama's mother did so die while the other circumstances are embellishments of the old buddha and mahapurusha legend but the construction of this sutta is curious the monks in the jitavana are talking of the wondrous powers possessed by buddhas gotama enters and asks what is the subject of their discourse they tell him and he bids ananda describe more fully the wondrous attributes of a buddha ananda gives a long list of marvels and at the end gotama observes take note of this too as one of the wondrous attributes of a buddha that he has his feelings perceptions and thoughts under complete control there are twenty-four jain tankaras and according to some accounts twenty-four incarnations of vishnu probably all these lists are based on some calculation as to the proper allowance of saints for an eon the biographies of these buddhas are brief and monotonous for each sage they record the number of his followers the name of his city parents and chief disciples the tree under which he attained enlightenment his height and his age both in extravagant figures they also record how each met gotama 
in one of his previous births and prophesied his future glory. The object of these biographies is less to give information about previous Buddhas than to trace the career of Gautama as a Bodhisattva. This career began in the time of Dipankara, the first of the twenty-five Buddhas, incalculable ages ago, when Gautama was a hermit called Samida. Seeing that the road over which Dipankara had to pass was dirty, he threw himself down in the mire, in order that the Buddha might tread on him and not soil his feet. At the same time, he made a resolution to become a Buddha, and received from Dipankara the assurance that ages afterwards his wish would be fulfilled. This incident, called Pranidhana, or the vow to become a Buddha, is frequently represented in the frescoes found in Central Asia. But their interest clearly centers in his last existence. They not infrequently use the word bodhisattva to describe the youthful Gautama or some other Buddha before the attainment of Buddhahood. But in later literature, it commonly designates a being now existing, who will now be a Buddha in the future. In the old phase of Buddhism, attention is concentrated on a human figure which fills the stage. But before the canon closes, we are conscious of a change, which paves the way for the Mahayana. Our sympathetic respect is invited not only for Gautama the Buddha, but for the struggling Bodhisattva, who, battling towards the goal with incredible endurance and self-sacrifice, through lives innumerable, at last becomes Gautama. It is only natural that the line of Buddhas should extend after as well as before Gautama. In the Pitakas there are allusions to such a posterior series, as when, for instance, we hear that all Buddhas past and to come have had and will have attendants like Ananda. But Pitaya, the Buddha of the future, has not yet become an important figure. He is just mentioned in the Diga Nikaya, and Buddha, Vamsa, and the Melinda Panna quotes an utterance of Gautama to the effect that he will be the leader of thousands, as I am of hundreds. But the quotation has not been identified. The Buddhas enumerated are supreme Buddhas, Samasam Buddha. But there is another order, called Pakika, Sanskrit Parthyeka, or private Buddhas. Both classes attained by their own exertions to a knowledge of the Four Truths, but the Pakika Buddhas are not, like the Supreme Buddhas, teachers of mankind and omniscient. Their knowledge is confined to what is necessary for their own salvation and perfection. They are mentioned in the Nikayas as worthy of all respect, but are not prominent in either the earlier or later works, which is only natural, seeing, by their very definition, they are self-centered and of little importance for mankind. The idea of the private Buddha, however, is interesting, inasmuch as it implies that even when the four truths are not preached, they still exist and can be discovered by anyone who makes the necessary mental and moral effort. It is also noticeable that the superiority of a supreme Buddha lies in his powers to teach and help others. A passionless and self-centered sage falls short of the ideal. End of chapter 15 End of Hinduism and Buddhism, an historical sketch, volume one by Charles Eliot.